If you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have one, go with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 11. Genesis 11, we've been on a series of teachings over the past month focusing on four stories in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, and we've entitled this series, How We Got Here, Origin Stories of Brokenness and Redemption. And I chose this series to wrestle with the first 11 chapters because if you want to understand why the world is in the place that it's in, uh, look no further than the beginning of the Bible. If you want to understand the suffering, the pain, the division, the hostility, uh, look no further than the first 11 chapters of the Bible. And so these are origin stories of our brokenness, that what happened uh, back then is what happens today, that we reenact these stories in our day-to-day interactions, in the ways that we um, try to uh, make something of ourselves. We, we reenact these stories, their origin stories of brokenness. And so we focus on the stories of Adam and Eve. We focus on the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, last week we focused on the story of Noah's Ark. And today we're going to look at the Tower of Babel. All very familiar stories, uh, and my hope today is that I will uh, offer uh, maybe an angle to understanding the Tower of Babel story that might be helpful for us as we seek to live faithfully uh, to Jesus in this world. And so Genesis 11, we'll look at the first nine verses here, it's on the screen as well, but uh, follow along uh, with me. Genesis 11, beginning at verse number one, hear the word of the Lord, it says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found the plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and Confused their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. If I had a title for my message today, uh, I do have a title. Uh, it's to put down your bricks, to put down your bricks, that God has a name for you, that God has an identity for you, and you are invited to lay down the bricks that you've used to construct your life. Let's pray. Jesus, open ourselves up to your word. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, give us revelation and illumination. Speak to us, Lord, for we are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yesterday, after spending a lovely afternoon with Rosie, we watched a movie, had a good meal at a restaurant, 
After a number of hours of being with each other, we returned to our children. <laughs> and it was delightful to see them. Uh, and when we returned, they were with my mother-in-law, my father-in-law at their home in Long Island. And after returning to see them, after about 10 minutes or so, there was an impromptu game of Jenga that began to ensue. And I don't know about you, but I love this game, a game in which you are trying to build a tower of blocks high and the goal of the game is for you not to be the person that topples the tower. But the challenge of the game is that the longer you play and the higher you build, the more unstable the tower becomes. And so you need a delicacy, you need a soft touch, you need strategy, you need skill, or else the tower is going to fall. And after it fell repeatedly yesterday, I began to think about our lives as a people, that our lives are often like this game of Jenga in which we build our lives. And we build our lives, and if we build long enough, and if we build high enough, sooner or later, there is some instability that comes our way because we can build our lives in such a way that leads to instability. There are really two ways of building our lives, and we see these two ways fleshed out in the story of the Tower of Babel as well as the story of Noah's Ark. When we looked last week, the first way of building a life is, is to build a life that's based in obedience to God. We see Noah building an ark out of obedience to God. And then we have in our story in the Tower of Babel a building that is done in isolation from God. And so here we have two options before us. We can build in obedience to God or we can build in isolation from God. One leads to great stability, the other leads to instability. And the question is, how are we building our lives? Are we building in obedience to God or are we building in isolation from God? And so when we look at this story here, we see that the people were building in isolation from God. And it wasn't that their tower was not strong. It was that their motives were wrong. The tower itself was strong, but their motives were wrong. And because their motives were wrong, it was subjected to a kind of toppling. And when we look at our lives, the things that we build, on the outside, we can look strong, but when we don't have the right motives, we find ourselves subjected to our towers falling. This is what we see in this chapter. Now, in chapter 11, humanity has continued to go its own way. And this is surprising given where we've been so far. Right before the story, we see the story of Noah. That Noah is obedient to God, but he lives in a world that's wicked, a world that's rebellious, a world that is doing their own thing. And, and they're so corrupt and so wicked and so violent that God says, I got to start all over. And so God starts all over, except he keeps Noah and his family. And you would think that after this catastrophe of the flood, that the people would get their act together. And yet even after the catastrophe of the flood, just a couple of chapters later, we see the people still doing their own thing still trying to build a life in isolation from God. And we learn this by the word that comes up over and over in the first 11 chapters. The word is east. That the people of God continue to move east. 
And the word east in the first 11 chapters is a, it's a metaphor to let us know that they're moving away from the presence of God. We see this come up at least three times in the first 11 chapters. And the first using of it, it's uh, in Genesis 3, where, where after they sinned, he drove the man out. He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden. He's already heading east. And then they move outside of the garden in Genesis 4. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Od, Nod, east of Eden. Here we have now in Genesis 11. As the people moved eastward, they found the plain in Shinar and settled there. They, they go east, and the further east they go, the further away from the presence of God they are going. And what we see is they are moving east to build a tower. Now, on the surface, it seems like, what's the problem? Why does God have a problem with them building a tower? And, and it, makes it, it makes it seem as if God is very insecure, that they're going to storm heaven, they're going to push God off the throne. But you know that God knows that there is no physical structure that can be built high enough to enter into God's dimension of reality. God's dimension of reality is not as we understand it with the material and physicality of our lives. God's dimension of reality is in a different dimension. And so you can build very high and you'll never get to God in that way. And so why does God have a problem with them building high? And if I could narrow it down to two things, I narrow it down. God had a problem with them because of two words, exclusion and enoughness. And those are two words that I want to unpack as I look at this story. The problem of exclusion and the problem of enoughness. And these are two problems that as we build our lives that we are often tempted to live according to exclusion and enoughness. The people in the first word, exclusion, they are afraid. They are afraid. At the end of verse 4, we see why they are afraid. They want to build a city, a tower, because they are afraid of being scattered throughout the earth. Now, you might ask, what's the problem here? What's the problem with, being, with wanting to dig down deep roots? What's the problem with staying in one location? They are afraid of being scattered. Why does it matter that they leave? Why can't they just stay there? And the answer to this question is found in God's earlier commission and mandate to them to fill the earth. God has called his people to fill the earth, to, to be fruitful and multiply and to carry the presence of God over every square inch on planet earth. And instead of them going out to carry the presence of God, they stay in one location. They stay in a setting that's familiar to them, in a setting that they're comfortable with, in a setting that is marked by sameness, marked by homogeneity. They all speak the same language. And so they build a tower that keeps them in a familiar space in a space that's safe enough for them, in a space that they fully understand. And so here they are. They're, they're unified, but their unity is problematic. And the reason why their unity is problematic is because their unity was based on uniformity. And anytime your unity is based on uniformity, you lay the groundwork down for exclusion. Anytime your unity is based on uniformity, you're laying the groundwork down 
for excluding others. And we see this in our lives every single day. We see people building lives, building families, building churches, building communities, building nations in such a way that keeps us safe in a culture of uniformity. That we are around people who always think as we do and look as we do and vote as we do. And so we have created a culture of unity that's based on uniformity. And God sees the problem. That every time you base unity on uniformity, you lay the groundwork down for excluding others. And God knows that we have a tendency to have our world marked by a kind of tribalism. A kind of tribalism that says there is the us group. And then there's the them group. There's the in group. And there's the out group. And so our lives are always about creating these categories in which to classify people. To keep us within our safe zone of familiarity. And to exclude and marginalize anyone who does not do exactly or speak the language that I speak. We're building a tower. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to have shared vision, shared value, shared interests. There's nothing wrong with wanting to hang around people that you get along with. I do that all the time. But the question is, are we erecting towers that keep us within the safe bubble of our own familiarity to which we exclude others? The other day, I, last year, I, 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 I was on a plane, and, and I had my Mets hat on, and as I'm walking to the back of the plane, I've never been in first class. It must be nice. And, and so I, I'm walking all the way to the back, and as I'm walking all the way to the back with my Mets hat on, I see another passenger with a Mets hat on. Now, I've never seen this person a day in my life. I don't know his name. I don't know his story. I don't know where he's flying to, where he's coming from. I don't know. All I know is that we shared vision together. We, we, we shared values together. Uh, this is a good guy. I don't know who he is. He's a good guy. And, 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 and as I seen him, I look, I just gave him a little fist bump. Uh, and I just kept walking and got to my seat. Good guy right there. Good guy. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be with people in which there's shared vision and, and shared values. But again, the problem is we can, we can build a tower in such a way in which we create an us versus them. And our world knows how to create an us versus them. We know how to create an us versus them in which our unity is based on uniformity. It happens all the time. Us versus them. There are the organic people and the non-organic people. There's the vegetarians and the meat-eating people. There's the iPhone people and the Samsung people. The Mac people and the PC people. The social media people and the people too good for social media people. And, and, and we create bubbles. And, 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 and we create exclusion, and, and it's us versus them, but, but it goes deeper than this. Because that's, that's surface stuff to be a, 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 an Android person or, or an Apple person. It, it, that's on the surface, but, but what begins to happen is we build other kinds of towers that cause all kinds of disruption in our world. We build racial towers, racial towers of exclusion. And so there is a kind of ethnocentrism to our lives that we hang around people who only look like us. 
We hang around people that we only understand and fail to see that the gospel is not just a bridge that gets us to God. It's a sledgehammer that tears down every single wall that stands between us. And so we build up these racial barriers in which we create hierarchy, in which we create a sense of belonging, a sense of familiarity. And it's manifested in so many different ways. There's some who, who have children, and they, when they think about their children getting married, there's already a list in their head, maybe subconsciously, of who they don't want their children to marry. And that's a good question that we have to be wrestling with. Who can't your children marry? I mean, they're going to marry whoever they want anyway, but in your mind, who can't your children marry? Is there a particular uh, skin color that they can't marry? Is there a particular place from the world that they're coming from that, that, that you prefer they not, they not marry? Here's the, here's the question. The question is not, can I be your brother in Christ? The question is, can I be your brother-in-law? That's the question. <laughs> Some of you will get that on Tuesday. That, yeah, that's the question. And so we build these, we, we create these racial towers of exclusion and ethnocentrism. When I was growing up, I, 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 I'd date a girl and I'd say to one of my family members, hey, I, I met a girl and the first question was not, is she a Christian? The, the first question is, is she Puerto Rican? That's the question. <laughs> Let's get our priorities in order here. Is she Puerto Rican? Oh, yeah, no, yes, oh, praise the Lord, you know, yes. <laughs> And so we, we build racial towers, we build class towers, towers that we organize ourselves in such a way to, to avoid the poor, to avoid the immigrant, to avoid the refugee. This is entrenched in decision-making in our own lives and in governments, and, and all of a sudden we create a tower in which who's acceptable, who's not acceptable, who can be received, who needs to be deported. And so the, we, we create class towers. We, we create congregational towers in which we hang around people in a congregation that, that, that we, just, we, we, just want, we just like them. They look like us. And so we even within, the, within a diverse congregation, we've created towers in which we are excluding, which is why I'm under no illusion that just because we have 75 nations represented in our congregation, I am under no illusion that we are doing the hard work of breaking through barriers and say that in the name of Jesus, we're going to speak to racism. In the name of Jesus, we're going to speak to ethnocentrism. In the name of Jesus, we're going to be more than just a sanctified subway car, a group of diverse people in close proximity to each other. We are more than a sanctified subway car. We are the family of God who's been made new by Jesus Christ. And yet we built congregational towers. And in our world, we are mindful that there are political towers that are built in which we create an us versus them, who's in, who's out. And it's reflected in so much of our day-to-day -day interactions with each other. I was preaching at a place earlier this year, and I talked about the makeup of New Life Fellowship Church, so this, this congregation I was speaking to, and talked about the complexity of being a pastor of a church that's very diverse and complicated. And I talked about the, the racial makeup, the, the ethnic breakdown, the, 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 the generational diversity. And then I said, not only is there generational diversity, ethnic diversity, 
There's also in our congregation political diversity. And this makes my job very hard as a, as a pastor. And I said that in our congregation, if I could venture to guess some uh, estimates, this is not a research project I've done, but this is my, my gut, my sense, is that in the 2016 election, I think that 30% of new lifers voted for Hillary Clinton. 30% of new lifers voted for Donald Trump. Another uh, 30% probably wrote in Batman or something like that. And, <laughs> and then 10% abstained and said, I'm not going to vote. And I said that, and then someone came up to me after the service and said, wow, your, your church sounds wonderful, but it sounds very difficult as well because I don't know if I could be at a place in which 30% of the people voted for Hillary Clinton. And I thanked him for his honesty with that. And some of you might be thinking, I don't know if I could be at this church either. I had 30% voted for Clinton. And then some of you are saying, 30% voted for Trump? I mean, what kind of church is this here? And here we are. Here we are. Trying to figure it out together. Trying to be a different kind of community. Trying to follow Jesus faithfully. And yet we are very tempted to build our own towers. To create what Ed Friedman a guy who wrote a lot on family systems theory, to create a herding instinct in which we gravitate and pull those into our own orbit and later for everyone else. The problem of the building of the Tower of Babel was that they refused to, to fulfill the mandate of, of spreading the presence of God to the entire world. But that was the first problem, exclusion. There's another problem, and it is the problem of enoughness. You say it this way, there was the problem of fear and the problem of pride. The problem of exclusion, the problem of enoughness. And it is here where we see the words in verse 3 and 4, their other problem. It says, follow with me, they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Then they used the brick instead of stone and tar from water. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Look what's up in yellow there. Let's come, let us build ourselves and then so that we may make a name for ourselves. It is evident that these people wanted to live with significance. They wanted to live with meaning. They wanted to live with a sense that they were a people. They were somebody and yet it seems as if their pride got the best of them. Now, the question I always wonder when I think about pride in my own life, when I think about pride in people that I meet, people that I see on television, I often wonder, is there anything that is uh, really helping that pride come to the surface? What's beneath the pride, I often wonder. Is pride at the very bottom or is there something else beneath it that's pushing pride to the surface? What I often think in my life and when I look at others is that when I see a proud person, an arrogant person, or whether that arrogance is coming from me or that pride is coming from me, I often can locate what's beneath the pride. And what's often beneath the pride is this feeling that I'm not enough. And so I want to let the world know that I'm enough. Therefore, I'm going to build a city. Therefore, I'm going to build a tower. 
Why? To make a name for myself. Because I, I am not enough. And our world reminds us consistently day in and day out that we're not enough. And the deep desire of our soul is to be enough. And yet it's elusive. We, we have a hard time grasping enoughness. We are reminded every single day we're not enough. We're not pretty enough, handsome enough, thin enough, built enough, smart enough, educated enough, successful enough. Every single day we are reminded that we are not enough. And so we build towers in the form of our work, in the form of our relationships, in the form of our achievements to let ourselves and let the world know I am enough. But it is never enough. There's a great book I've read over the past couple of weeks. It's called Seculosity. And this book, Seculosity, is a play on words on the word religiosity. And it's actually a, it's a, it was a wonderful book. And I love the subtitle, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion and What to Do About It. And the premise of the book essentially is this, that as the world gets less and less formally religious, not as many people are going to church these days, as the world is getting less and less religious, the church is becoming more, uh, the, the people are becoming more and more religious. It's just that they have what's called replacement religions. There are different kinds of religions that we've created to help us feel like we are enough. And so whether that religion comes in the form of our career, whether that religion comes in the form of our politics, in the form of our romance, in the form of technology, we have created replacement religions to help us get over our sense of not enoughness. And we see this in our lives every day. We have a feeling, I, I, so for some of us, we think I'll be enough when I'm successful. Successful at my job, got the right title, got the right salary, then I will feel like I'm enough. And so what happens in, in our hope to get to that place of enoughness, we never rest. We're tired all the time, we're irritable, we're burned out. We've lived according to this religion that says, until I can get to that place, then I'll be enough. But it is never enough. And if we can't get enough, the next thing we say is, if I cannot be enough through my own success, I'll be enough when my children are successful. And so now we live through our children and place burdens on our children and set demands and standards on our children. Why? So that, our children, so that we can find our sense of enoughness through our children's success. And so why did you get that? Why did you get that 90? Why didn't you get a hundred? And I'm all for academic excellence. I'm all for let's work with each other. Let's do the best that we can. But then there's a fine line where I am basing my sense of enoughness on whether my kids are successful or not. I came across a, a story along these lines. A friend of mine, a guy named John Tyson, he wrote a book called The Burden is Light, and he was talking about moving into a new neighborhood in Manhattan. And as he was in this playground, he met another family, and this mother came to them, recognized they were new to the neighborhood, and asked their four-year-old, five-year-old kid which kindergarten uh, that he was getting into. And they mentioned the name of a school, 
And the person was shocked that they sent their kid to that school. And the conversation went like this. If, why did you send him there? If you don't get him in the right kindergarten, he won't be accepted in the right elementary school. And if you don't get him in the right elementary school, he's not going to be eligible for the right middle school. And if he doesn't get in the right middle school, he has no chance of getting in the right high school. And if he doesn't get in the right high school, how is he ever going to get in one of those Ivy League schools? The kid is four. Now, I'm all for our children getting into good schools, high education. I got a very good education. I want my children to get a great education. But there is a line that we cross in which the reason we're doing this is not just for their flourishing. It's so that I can be enough. We have the religion of technology in which we believe that I'll be enough when I get enough love from people on social media. And so now we have a technological addiction in which I'll be enough when I get X amount of likes on this post and on this picture. And if enough people are following me on social media, when does it end? It's never enough. Someone said to John D. Rockefeller some years ago, the uh, man that we know by his name, and he said, how much uh, money will ever be enough? And, And his response very famously was, just a little bit more. And that's our lives as well, just a little bit more. And so here the people are. They're building a tower based on exclusion and building a tower based on enoughness. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to build for themselves a city. And then God responds. And let me show you the two ways God responds. God responds, first of all, by scattering them. And on the surface, it looks like judgment. But I want to tell you that this is a grace. God scatters their language. Is it painful? Yes, but it's a grace. Because God is saying, you need to move beyond your echo chamber. You need to move beyond this bubble you've created, this bubble trouble you've created. There is another world out there, and I'm sending you to be a carrier of my presence to a world that's out there and unfamiliar. And so God scatters them. And this is why we see he gives them new languages. And this is why we see that the anti-Babel story is actually found in the book of Acts, where the same thing happens in the book of Acts that happens in Genesis 11. Let me explain it this way. In the book of Acts, Jesus Christ has died. He's he's risen from the dead. And then he tells his disciples, you are going to be my witnesses everywhere. And their question is, "Um, that's great, but when are you gonna restore Israel? When are you gonna restore our nation? When are we going to get political power back? And Jesus says, uh, don't worry about that. The Father works, about, works on that. They go, no, no, when are we going to get that stuff back? And Jesus says, uh, just pray about it. I'm, I'm leaving. Uh, I'll be back. And, and so they start praying. And after a number of days of praying, the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Spirit comes, what does the Spirit do? The Spirit gives them different languages. Oh, here it is. It's It's the anti-Babel story. And and as they're speaking the praises of God in different languages, the neighbors are going, wait a second, I I hear my language. Who's praising God in my language? 
And, and what we see here is that the intent of God has been the same for us to carry the name of God and the name of Jesus wherever we go. And so here God gives them the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues in this context was not given so that we could have goosebumps and feel oh, oh, holy and religious. The goal of it was that you would make the name of God great and carry his name wherever you go. That's what God does. And so God scatters them in the book of Acts. But then we see how God responds as well. God responds to their exclusion by scattering them and saying it's going to be hard, but you need to move beyond your comfort zone. You need to go to territory that you're not familiar with. Talk to people that you don't like. Have hard conversations that you rather avoid. But then there's another way that God responds, and I want to end with this. God responds to this sense of enoughness by letting them know that it is God who is enough. And we see this not in Genesis 11, we see this in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, there's actually a beautiful juxtaposition, a beautiful contrast from Genesis 11 to Genesis 12, where we follow the life of Abraham. And what we see in the way that Abraham was called is that it is in direct contrast to, to, the Babel, to the Tower of Babel and their effort. Look at the contrast here. In Genesis 11, they said to each other. In Genesis 12, God said to Abram. In Genesis 11, they said, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. In Genesis 12, God says, I will make you. In Genesis 11, they say, come, let us build ourselves a city. In Genesis 12, God says, I will make you into a great nation. In Genesis 11, they say, let us make a name for ourselves. In Genesis 12, God says, I will make your name great. Here's the contrast. You can live a life in which you try to build a a great name for yourself and build a sense of identity on yourself, or you can receive the name that only God can give. And every time we build a life in which we try to make a name for ourselves, we forfeit the name that God wants to give us. We forfeit the identity that God wants to give us. God says, I will make your name great. And the way that God makes our name great is by coming down. There are three words in Genesis 11 and verse 5 that really serves as the summary of Christianity. And the words are, the Lord came down. In Genesis 11, God came down. He comes down to scatter the people, but this would not be the last time God would come down. From Genesis on, over and over again, the people are trying to make a name for themselves. Throughout the entire Bible, they, they get into their holy huddles. They, they try to, 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 to outperformance the next person to get approval of God. And over and over again, the world is in a mess in which they can never be enough. And as you look at the pages of Scripture, we see that God would come down again. In a world that always tries to succeed but never could get there, God comes down. To a world that's marked by fear and anxiety and exclusion, God comes down. In a world that struggles to feel significant and have a meaningful existence, God comes down. And God comes down again. I don't know how he came in Genesis 11, but I do know how he came in the New Testament. 
And God will come down in the person of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14 comes, and the Word became flesh. God comes down. And God comes down to let us know that in Him you are enough. That in His love you are enough. That in His saving power you are enough. And so Jesus comes, he lives a life, he dies on our behalf, he resurrects in power to let the world know, in me you are enough. <laughs> Apart from me you can do nothing, but in me you are enough. Therefore, put your bricks down. Stop the tower you're building. You will never be enough. With another, another degree will never make you enough. Another raise will never make you enough. A new title will never make you enough. Another marriage will never make you enough. A child will not make you enough. Uh, uh, you will never be enough. A new president will never make you enough. A new, nothing will make you enough except God and God alone. So we look to the one who is more than enough. God is the God who is more than enough. And as we root our lives in this God, we find that our enoughness comes not from our performance. Our enoughness comes from God's love, from God's performance, from God's works, from God's righteousness, from God's mercy, from God's grace. That's how we get our enoughness. And it is out of that place of enoughness that God sends us into the world to carry the presence of God to the various spaces we find ourselves in. And so the invitation today is to, is to let the brick down. And how do we live this out? I want to invite the worship team to come forward. How do we live this out? Very simply, by resting in this truth that you are enough in Jesus Christ. You are enough in Jesus Christ. When will it ever be enough It'll never be enough if it's based on what you do. It'll never be enough if it's based on what you build. It'll never be enough if it's based on what you possess. Some of you say, if I could just get a house on Long Island, then I'll be enough. <laughs> if I could just get that new job, then I'll be enough. It'll never be enough because our enoughness is only found in God. How do we respond? Lord, every single day. Remind me that I'm enough in you. And let me lay down the bricks that I'm trying to build, the identities I'm trying to construct, the ways that I have lived my life that excludes others. Help me, Lord, to see that you are more than enough. Let's pray together. As the people of God, we're called to a life of prayer silence because it's in prayer and silence that the Holy Spirit reminds us that our enoughness comes from Jesus Christ not from the things that we do or the things that we have it comes from him I wonder today what are you basing your enoughness on what's your enoughness story the story you tell yourself. If just this happened, then all will be right. And 
and then it happens and then you move on to the next thing what's your story right now Lord Jesus Lord we live in a world that constructs towers and cities to make our names great and yet Lord only you can make our name great because our names are attached to you to your name and so Lord help us to see that there's nothing else nothing else that can satisfy the longings of our soul nothing else to make us into the people you've created nothing else but you your love, your grace, your mercy. And so, Lord, we sing to you now words of praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Let's sing together. I'm caught up in your presence. I just want sit here at your feet caught up in this holy moment I never want to leave oh I'm not here for blessings Jesus you don't gone through the motions I'm sorry when I just sang another song take me back to where we started and open up my heart to you I'm sorry when I've come I'm sorry when I forgot that you're enough and take me back to where we started I open up my heart to you Lord, I'm caught up in your presence I just want holy moments I never want to leave oh, oh, oh I'm not here for blessings Jesus Jesus you don't Oh, yeah.
Let's have our prayer team come to my left. Invite those who are going to offer the bread and the cup to come to my right. When we come to the table of communion, we are reminded that Jesus Christ is enough. That we feast on his broken body and poured out blood. And that our enoughness comes because of what he's done for us. Because of his love and grace and mercy. That's how we are made to be enough in him. And so when we take bread and dip it in a cup, we are reminded that this is the source of our enoughness in Him, not in what we accomplish, not in what we possess, not in what people think about us. Our source of enoughness is in Him. And so come and feast of Jesus and take bread and the cup. And to my, right, on my left, we have our, our prayer team. And for some of you, you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never received this invitation to find your enoughness in Him. And if you've never done that before, I want to tell you, today's a great day to do it. To find your sense of enoughness in Him. To find a sense of freedom and peace in Him. And so our prayer team, we stay as long as we need to pray for you. For others, you've built towers of exclusion towers in which you keep yourself in safe distance from others and whether it is just having a difficult conversation with someone else or relating to someone who doesn't see things the same way you do we're all subjected to it and we gather as the people of God to be reminded that every time we construct a tower of exclusion and enoughness it's subject to toppling over because it's not based on a firm foundation. And so for whatever needs you have today, we wanna to pray for you. We wanna invite you to take the bread and the cup. As we close, let me invite you to open your hands to receive a blessing. And we open our hands to remind ourselves that in our own strength, in our own performance, we'll never be enough. We'll never be enough for our own standards. We'll never be enough for other people's standards for the world standards. And so we open our hands to say, Lord, 
may I find my identity, my sense of enoughness in you. And that's what blessing does. It reminds us that at the core of who you are, you are loved by God. And he loves you with an everlasting love. And so with your hands and your heart in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. May you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that in Jesus Christ, you are enough. And may the Lord scatter you to different parts of this city to be an ambassador of reconciliation, to cross chasms that the world has created, to show forth the very presence of God working in and through you. And so I bless you today in the strong, in the beautiful, in the enough name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you all.